Welcome to the Political Books Podcast with me, Ian Dale, in association with politicos.co.uk. Well, today we're going to be talking to the author of Why the Tories Won, the inside story of the 2015 election. And uh, the author is Tim Ross, who's political correspondent with The Telegraph. Tim, hi. Hi, Ian. Um, I published this book, as, as you well know, um, and I, I, lo- I, love, I love books about elections. And it's interesting, there's really only been two, yours and Ian Watson's, looking at it from sort of the Labour side more than your, your stuff, though you do, you do do that a bit. Um, what sort of made you think this was an election worth writing about? I guess I thought, as, as I think most people did, on the polling day at 10 o'clock when the, when the exit poll came through, that it was just a big shock and no one saw it coming really. None of the party leaders saw it coming, but anything else, and I certainly didn't. I wrote some things in my newspaper uh, which demonstrate that. I completely got it wrong as well. Um, and I just wanted to understand what happened. I thought it was a fascinating story. No one really thought the Tories were going to win a majority. And it just seemed like it was it was really worth trying to dig into what happened, how they did it, did they always know they were going to do it, and what went wrong for Labour. And also, I mean, the impact that those polls mm. all the way through might have had on the outcome too. It was just fascinating, you know. What, what are the difficulties and challenges of writing a book like this? Because clearly you've got to have a lot of insiders talking to you. Yeah. They've got to trust you in a way, okay, the election's over, but mm. they, they still don't necessarily want to be named as the sources for, the, for, for what happened. How do you approach a book like this? It's, it's a difficult balance, if I'm honest, and, and uh, you've got to be careful because, as you already say, you, you want to get the inside track on what really happened. Um, and to do that, you've got to be able to protect your sources some of the time, in fact, quite a lot of the time you'll see in the book that I'm unable to say who exactly has given me particular mm. bits of information or, or, or anecdotes, but you need to be able to get to those people and build, build those relationships and try to keep those relationships uh, with individual contacts, sometimes at very high levels of the party, sometimes people who, who work behind the scenes. And, um, and so uh, it's, I guess it's, it's always a difficult balancing act that you want to get the information, you, you need them to trust you. And you, you really got to be careful not to stitch them up. I remember you wrote a sort of long read piece on the Telegraph website about the election campaign. I think that w- I can't remember how we first sort of yeah, got in right. touch with yeah. each other. Whether you, whether I contacted you after that, I think you, you tweeted about that piece. Did I do right? Uh, and I just thought it was a fascinating thing. And Patrick Winter did something similar yeah. in the Guardian, um, mainly sort of on the on the Labour side. And it was interesting this sort of development in journalism where even five years ago you would really have just been writing for the paper rather mm. than the website and yet now you've got this opportunity to write much longer pieces on the website which in some ways I suppose is a, maybe a detriment to, to books because you, you, you can say almost what you want to say on the site but you must have got a big reaction to that piece. Yeah it was an interesting piece to do and, uh, and quite a few people seemed to like it and that made me think really well actually maybe there is a, a long, mm. an even longer story because that was the that was the sort of version in the paper, a feature I did a week after the election, trying to uncover some of the things the Tories got up to in their ground operation, pounding the streets, busting people around. Yeah. And uh, I expect we'll come on to a road trip <laughs> in a bit. Yes. But, um, <laughs> if we must. Yeah, well, uh, but yes, and then you, among others, were kind enough to say that you liked the piece, and I thought, well, maybe I should just drop in down the line. And you did, and here we are. <laughs> yes, with a Obviously there are lots of characters that run through this book, but the main one, I guess, is Linton Crosby. Hmm. 
Um, how did he first become involved with the Tories for this election? Because he and Cameron, shall we say, have never been that close. Um, how did he come to be appointed? It's an interesting story. I, I think what happened was Crosby was clearly very successful in this country getting Boris Johnson elected twice as Mayor of London. Uh, in in Labour-dominated London, he got a Tory in twice, you know. And, um, and that really turboed the kind of demand in mm. the party to get him hired for the general election campaign. Um, Cameron was as well aware as anybody that the 2010 election campaign had not gone smoothly. There were a lot of divisions, personality clashes, and really I think they knew that they needed someone who could bring some clarity at the top, some kind of control to the Conservative campaigning operation. Um, and I don't think in the end Cameron and George Osborne needed a great deal of persuading. The guy who actually needed persuading to take it on was Linton Crosby, it seems, because he didn't particularly rate the Prime Minister um, very highly. He was actually pretty cross that um, the, the way that the Tories were running the country in 2012, uh, with George Osborne's dreadful omni-shambles mm. budget and the pasty tax and all, all the rest of it, was ruining Boris's chances actually of getting in. Um, so he told people that you know if Boris lost, that would be Cameron's fault, it would be Osborne's fault. Yeah. He was quite cross about that privately, I think. Um, so when it came to the 2015 campaign for the election, uh, Crosby, it, it, uh, my book, um, describes how he needed a lot of persuading, how Andrew Feldman and others had to go and see him and convince him that it would be a good thing uh, for him to come on board. And, and he did take some convincing. He, in fact, thought David Cameron really was only interested in being Prime Minister because it was some kind of frolic for a rich bloke to do, uh, which was a fairly damning assessment. But Cameron persuaded him um, and Crosby came on board and in the end I think they did form a very good relationship and uh, Cameron outsourced pretty much the whole control of the campaign to Crosby. He had to do that. That was one of Linton Crosby's key demands. So um, Osborne, what was his role then? Because of course he, he was effectively yeah. running the 2010 campaign, which yeah. as you say um, had its faults. Yeah. Um, was Osborne more or less sidelined in this? I mean, he doesn't feature anywhere on the cover of the he, book. He's not he? on the cover, and uh, and really the only guy who was who was in, in full command was Linton Crosby, and and, um, and that was a point that Osborne would make privately to people. Um, and you know he'd say Cameron's in charge, and. and and Cameron would say, obviously, I'm in charge, but the reality was that, that Linton Crosby mm. was, was really telling everybody what to do. Um, and, uh, and Cameron was perfectly happy with that, actually. I mean, Osborne was, was in all the big conversations. Let's not minimise his, his, his presence there, but really the, the guy directing it all was this Australian wizard of Oz, as he's known, who was the, the consultant brought in as a hired gun to run the show. And what do you make of Crosby? Because he has a certain reputation, and um, particularly on the left, who regard him as almost a sort mm. of devil figure. And yet, privately, he's one of the nicest, politest p people you could ever hope to meet. Yeah. In great company. Um, one of these people, um, I liken him to Slavin Bilic, the West Ham manager, <laughs> in that yeah. he commands instant respect. And mm. no matter what he's talking about, you just respect the guy. Um, were there people in the Tory party who sort of were against his appointment? Certainly, I think um, it was criticised at the time by Lord Ashcroft, who I don't think he's ever been a particular fan, and um, he said that really, I think the point that Ashcroft was making when Crosby's appointment was announced was that 
for the election in 2015, the Tories had to appeal to people who thought about voting Tory in 2010, mm. but didn't, not just the core vote. And that was always the fear that Crosby's, you know, he could be characterised as a kind of a, a right-winger, you know, pretty, pretty core vote, pretty anti-immigration, that kind of thing. Um, politics of fear, if you like. Um, and, and Ashcroft and others thought, actually, it, 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 you know, Tim Montgomery, there was a bit of criticism there as well um, during the campaign too. I think he was quite critical. Um, Linton reacted to that a bit afterwards. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yes, it wasn't universally welcomed. I think, in the end, Crosby did convince his critics because clearly he delivered a majority. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of hindsight goes on after election campaigns. People who are on the winning side, everyone wants to take the credit. But uh, and the running theme of your book is that this actually was indeed largely down to Linton Crosby. I think I think when it comes to organising the campaign, there are few things that are more important than clarity and discipline. Labour didn't really have that clarity, and that was because speaking to the people I spoke to in the Labour campaign, and there's quite a lot. There's a long section on that in in the book really they didn't feel that Ed Miliband himself knew what he wanted to get mm. out of the election or who he wanted to be. I mean they knew he wanted to win it but, but he was a confused sort of character I think that the leadership in the Labour Party's headquarters in Brewers Green again was very confused. Um, no one quite knew who was supposed to be in charge. You could never say that really about the Tory. And election. yet we all wrote and talked about the fact that Ed Miliband won the first week, he won yep. the second week. Yep. Possibly not the third week, and it, yeah. it was one of those campa it, campaigns for him that peaked mm. too early. And but how did we all get that so wrong? W was it because we didn't understand what Linton Crosby's game plan was? I mean, in retrospect, we mm. all understand it. Just mm. keep banging on about Scotland, mm. keep banging on about the economy, and everything will come right. And we all thought this is this is a really bad campaign. They need to be more innovative. Mm. Actually, it was spot on. I think one of the one of the issues was the the real distinction between the air war, if you like, the headlines that we could all see on TV and in the newspapers and on the radio um, about which leader was doing well in a debate or mm. what political broadcast was good and what was actually happening in the 100 key seats around the country on the ground where you know a few, a few thousand voters here or there would make the difference. And the, the relentless focus, I mean you mentioned Cosby's core kind of messages there, and it's certainly true, he was banging on about the economy and he was banging on about Scotland and they were really key messages and they were clear, crucially. But the work that actually delivered the majority was really going on the ground, identifying those voters, exactly those voters, who would make the difference in those swing seats. Well, was there discontent within the Tories, and sort of maybe in the cabinet or on the advisor level, of the direction of the campaign? I remember meeting a special advisor outside a broadcasting studio and I said to this person why on earth can't you think of anything new to say it's really boring this campaign yeah, yeah. and he said it's because we haven't got anything else to say yeah and I mean he, he fit, seemed really frustrated yeah. by that but in retrospect I mean it worked well it's about clarity and consistency I do think there's something pr you know my instinct is there's something reassuring about consistency in your message if you do keep repeating something, people know where you are on an issue. And the Tories did keep repeating the point about Ed Miliband doing a deal mm. with Alex Salmond and Nicholas Sturgeon, and that being a key, a key message for, for why not to vote for Labour or any other party. And that, in the end, did cut through.
But again, I think we all, um, and the members of the cabinet, Ian Duncan Smith, I quote in the book, he said, you know, he was critical of, of the way David Cameron was, was appearing personally, not enough passion. Nicky Morgan said, we're banging on too much about the economy, we're not talking about health or education enough. Um, and I think all of us, all of those people, and people in the cabinet, just didn't really see the stealth operation that Linton Crosby was delivering on the ground in those key seats. And that actually was a, a very important thing. The fact that nobody really saw what was going on meant Labour, and the Lib Dems particularly in the South West, couldn't stop it. Obviously, uh, Linton Crosby's firm is advising Zach Goldsmith. Um, I'm not quite sure whether it's correct to say they're running his campaign, but they, they probably are. Um, do you think that Linton Crosby will return in 2020? Obviously, there'll be a new Tory leader by yeah, then. But yeah. um, by the time that Tory leader is elected, probably, there won't be a lot of time to change horses. Yes. Um, it, I think it depends largely who that leader is. It's hard to see, for example, if Boris gets the job or George Osborne, um, either of them really looking beyond Linton Crosby to come in and do the job, given they both have very good mm. relationships with him. I mean, <laughs> uh, as we know, um, George Osborne, or, or I think on election night, um, you know, Linton Crosby and George Osborne, uh, they promised to have a kiss if uh, if the Tories got a majority, and unless they had to had to follow through with it. I think it was quite a demure pet on the cheek. <laughs> but, um, no time. <laughs> um, no. But so I think they're probably both pretty solid. If it's Theresa May, who knows? Uh, it really depends who, who ends up taking taking on that job, I think, and whether Linton can be con convinced again to go back to it. Um, Grant Shapps, mm. who I feel very sorry for, because I think he was he was basically done over after the election. I mean, he was the chairman of the Tory party, okay. He wasn't in sole charge of the campaign. But um, he could have had a legitimate claim to a cabinet position, didn't get it for reasons that we all know, and of course has now uh, been forced to resign. I mean, what, what role did he play in the election campaign? Was it in any way crucial? I think Shapps played an important role in keeping, I suppose, he did two, two things very, very, which were very important, I and mean, I think he did them well. Um, one was trying to find a way to plug the gaps in the Conservative street army, if you like, the campaigners who would hit the ground, delivering leaflets, campaigning, knocking on doors, and doing all the canvassing that you need to do in an election campaign. He set up this operation called Team 2015, which was to get people to volunteer. And 100,000 people actually signed mm. up, not all of them turned up. About 20,000, I think, did regularly sort of pitch up and go on the buses that uh, were organised, partly by Mark Clark. Um, but also, he was a great kind of flak jacket for David Cameron and other cabinet ministers. He would turn up relentlessly on TV mm. and take the hits in the interviews. He'd, every day he'd go on TV and say, Maria Miller is a brilliant cabinet minister, there's no way she should resign over her expenses. She's fantastic. And then after five days of that, he'd turn up on day six and say, Maria Miller has made the right decision to resign today. <laughs> and that's actually quite a hard thing to do. And it, you know, it but he always looked so cheerful as well, and yeah. which irritated a lot of people, yeah. I think. But um, um, yeah, as I say, I feel quite sorry for him. But yeah. I mean, he—you mentioned Mark Clark there, who ran the road trip operation, ignoring. I mean, your book was written before all the Tory party bullying yeah, scandal came to light. The terrible events that, you know, the tragedy that led to yeah. Johnson's death. But how, yeah. how crucial was Road Trip 2015 and, and how did it work? Well, it was important in, in that it, it delivered really the activists to the target seats where they were needed. That's one of the reasons why 
Mark Clark was brought in to the Conservative mainstream operation. He was doing his road trip anyway, but there was a concern inside the Tory campaign headquarters that he was going to the wrong places. He wasn't going to the target seats that Linton Crosby mm -hmm. and others wanted uh, to be you know, the focus of their campaign. And so, um, for that reason, he, among, among others, he was brought in and told to go and do, do, do his job in the right target seat. Um, so it was important. Uh, the Tory party has suffered, I think, um, quite badly since 2010 from a loss of grassroots. Uh, so the, the people were not really in the places where they were needed to win the election, and they had and to be moved there. And by they knew that was going to happen. I can remember in 2004, when I was a candidate, uh, Liam Fox, who was then chairman of the party, coming to do a presentation that showed that by 2012, 25% uh, of the existing Tory party members would have died. Yes, and, and awkward that. Well, very awkward, yes. and, and those activists have never been replaced. So, and there are some marginal seats where there's barely a Conservative Party organisation mm. now. So to actually win those seats, yeah. and win some seats that hadn't been won by the Tories yeah. for decades, yeah. was an astonishing achievement. Yeah. And it, it wasn't all down to road trip. No. I mean, what, what would you, I mean, seats like, I mean, Telford, for example, mm. which was Tory in the dim and distant past, but mm. quite a long time ago. I mean, seats like that, which they won this time. What, what, why do you think that voters did go to the Tories in those seats this time? I think there were, there were a few reasons. I mean, road trip was important, but possibly the bigger reason was the enormous amount of targeted and very specifically uh, produced direct mail. They would write you a letter, mm. dear, dear Mr. Dale. This is what we think. Uh, this is what we we think you're interested in because actually we've we've spoken to you, our canvases have spoken mm. to you over the years. And we know that, uh, for example, you might be looking to buy a house, or you might be concerned about education in your area, or concerned about pensions. And these are what we're going to be doing on pensions because we know you're interested. So they had a mass direct mail operation, but it was very targeted at exactly those voters who could make a difference. And it was written in in uh, in a very tailored way, so it addressed the concerns of individuals who told Tory canvassers mm. what they were interested in, um, and, and and that I think made a massive difference. And uh, there was no way you could see that. But Nick Clegg, for example, in 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 the book, it's very clear that he had no idea really that the Tories were mounting this kind of operation in the southwest, and it can destroy the Lib Dems. That was one of the reasons why the Lib Dems were absolutely routed, was this massive direct mail operation. Mm. He's critical of the fact that, uh, as he see it, sees it, there will now be an arms race in terms of resources for that kind of thing. I mean, I, I think that's possibly always been the case, and the Lib Dems are a small party. They obviously well, don't have much money. No, and that's his problem. They, they yeah. always, they and indeed Labour to an extent, complain that they haven't got the money that the Tories have. Well, yeah. it's a, they, they can go and raise it. I mean, yeah. it's just that the Tories have been more successful yes. in, in raising it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, what, what role did the debates play in this election? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, the debates. There was only one actual debate which David mm. Cameron took part in. That was the seven-way debate with all, with with, set with six other leaders. Um, I think the debates really, the Tories, Cameron, Osborne, Crosby, saw them as something to get through. And Craig Oliver was, was very important because he's the number 10 communications chief who came from the BBC, he came from a broadcasting background. He sort of led those negotiations with the, the broadcasters and also coached Cameron intensively behind the scenes. That was a particularly interesting 
um, thing that I, I'm, I was told was, was actually how Cameron went away and was tucked away in this room and, and had a load of Tory staff was shouting, heckling him, trying to put him off his stride, asking awkward questions. People played, you know, one of his aides played mm. Nicholas Sturgeon, someone else played Ed Miliband, and there was this intensive coaching, the rehearsal sessions before the debate, so he was properly prepared. Cameron is a massive fan of Craig Oliver, isn't he? That, that, that opinion is not necessarily shared by everyone else. No, but I think, think whatever you like about Craig Oliver, he played a good, uh, an important role in the broadcasting uh, arena, and 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 r sort of that I think was was why Cameron is so attached to him. Um, uh, you know, other people are, if you like, m sometimes more influential with the press, and mm. and Cameron's got other advisors who take on that role. But it is extremely important now to make sure that your message is clear and that you know what you need to do to get those sound bites on the 10 o'clock news. Craig Oliver knew exactly what Cameron had to do and made sure he did it. And that was very, I mean, it was impressive, really, I think, that uh, Cameron could do that during those debates. You also talk about the moment that Cameron revealed he wasn't going to stand again yeah. as Prime Minister. That could have blown the whole thing out of the water, <laughs> actually. It was a massive gap. And, um, and Craig, was, uh, Craig Oliver was among those who were who could see it could have been a disaster really for Cameron. Right at the beginning of the campaign, he told the BBC that, that terms in office were a bit like shredded wheat. Uh, two are wonderful, but three might just be too many. And for any leader to put a shelf life on his own career is dangerous, but for someone on, on the brink of an election campaign who is building his entire message on the long-term economic plan mm. and on his leadership, to say, actually, there's no long term for me because I'm going to be off soon, um, is hugely dangerous. And I think Labour completely failed they to They didn't grab exploit that it, did they? No. And he, he kind of got away with it. it yeah. I, I know it's a completely different scenario, but it kind of reminded me of the Prescott punch in 2001, where <laughs> our instant reaction, everybody said, well, he's got to resign. There's yeah. no way he can survive this. Yeah. And we all thought that that was a gaffe of sort of epic proportions. And yeah. yet in both cases, they just sort of sailed through it. Yeah, they did. Um, and, and, and it's easy to think that because the Tories won a majority against the odds, their campaign was faultless. It wasn't. There were, there were a number of gaffes, and actually quite a few of them came back to the Prime Minister. Yeah. Other people told me for the book that, um, for example, every time there was a leak inquiry in number 10, invariably it was traced back to David Cameron because he's a chatty guy. <laughs> and he'll go to these receptions, have drinks with people, and then blab about the Tories' election. And, and he does, he has the habit of going off-piste in, in scripted speeches as well. He'll yeah. just make some little comment. I mean, the, the thing about West Ham... Yes, you mentioned West Ham. I mean, that, that was... Um, I had to get West Ham yeah. on the podcast somehow. That, w that was a good example yeah. of, of this. And I remember doing his conference speech this year, Sort of, they've gone to number ten. Have gone to great efforts not to comment on the Ashcroft book, yeah. and then he mentions it yes. in a sort of off-piece comment in his speech. Yeah. I think, why did you do that? I know, and he does. He, he, you know, in a sense, he's a little bit like Boris in that in that regard. He, he can't quite resist a, mm. you know, he can't quite resist temptation the whole time, um, and you need to be able to be that disciplined. And that was one of the most important things Crosby brought to the whole show mm. was that rigid discipline, and and he kept largely kept David Cameron in line. The West Ham gaff. Uh, the brain fade, as he put it, was really because he was so knackered. He was absolutely exhausted by that point. It was the end of April. He'd been going solidly 5 a.m. to midnight every day for four weeks or so, and he was fundamentally exhausted by that point. And of course, number 10 were de denying that he was tired, but he was. And, but, and I mean, I know, having fought an election campaign as a candidate, it is intensely knackering. Yeah. I don't know what it must be like for a party leader, because you're literally on the go for probably 20 hours a day for a whole month. 
and the electorate, of course, doesn't really bear that in mind at all, no. nor does the media. No. We all have great fun taking the <laughs> mick out of these people when, they, when, it, when it all goes wrong and someone says West Ham instead of Aston Villa. <laughs> but uh, it was, the, in a way, the, the fact he was so tired, that, was, that, was, that got to the human angle, as you say, on the mm. inside, really. People do get tired. They get irritable. They, mm. they, they, you know, Cameron was, was, was anxious and concerned and quite gloomy, actually, on, the, on election night itself. Um, the atmosphere in his home when he gathered with all his advisers uh, waiting for the results. They had, a, they had a, a beef pie, I think, which is one of his favourite kind of comfort foods, um, and sat around in his home trying to you know, steal themselves for whatever this exit poll was going to say. And, and he had also drafted, or someone had drafted, a sort of resignation speech, yeah. which I think he read out, didn't he, to the yeah. whoever was there. Yeah, and, and, and people you know, there was optimism around, but at the same time, actually, the poll earlier in the day in the Guardian, had, had, which had always, that Guardian ICM poll, had mm. always actually been quite favourable mm. to the Tories during the campaign, and for the first time it had given Labour a lead, and so there was a lot of apprehension around, and, and some fear, and people think, well, actually, maybe, it, you know, maybe, David, it's not going to work, you know, and he, you know, was, was, I think, feeling the same kind of thing, and, they, and then the clock ticked down to 10pm on election nights. Big Ben chimed and, and the numbers came up and the Tories were, were stunned to see them projected to get 316. I, I well remember that moment because I, I was presenting LBC's election night coverage and Sky wouldn't let us have advanced sight of the mm. exit poll. So we had pre-recorded five minutes, a sort of build up from five to ten mm. and then the bong started and all I had to go on, I had obviously couldn't script this yeah I just had to watch the BBC screen yes and I just saw conservatives largest point I thought, oh that's interesting so you sort of start talking about that and yeah. then as I was talking the numbers came up and I can remember just thinking oh my god what do I say now mm. <laughs> yes and because I mean actually look I, I listened back to it the other day because I've never listened back to it right and I don't listen back to hardly anything I do yeah. but that I thought no I will listen to that and it was like a sort of swan, sort of paddling underwater, <laughs> but sort of appearing quite calm. But it was quite a moment. I mean, how did Cameron react to that? Do you know? Well, what I was told was that there was a sort of a, a brief moment of stunned silence, and they were sort of what three sixteen, and then the whole room in Cameron's in Cameron's home in Oxfordshire just erupted. Basically, people were cheering, mm. and they were supposed to be having a. A conference call with Tory headquarters back in London with Linton Crosby and various other people, Andrew Feldman, um, just to uh, uh, plan how they were going to handle those results in media interviews that would happen during the night. And I think the call happened, but it doesn't sound like a very coherent call. Everyone mm. was just cheering and screaming down the phone and being terribly excited. Um, uh, yeah, so Cameron couldn't quite believe it, basically. None of the leaders actually could really believe that, mm. uh, which is very which is very revealing. Nick Clegg up in, uh, up in Sheffield, he was sitting on the sofa, he, he couldn't believe he was only going to get 10. Obviously, that was more than he ended up with, he only had 8 yeah. when the results came in, and he, he reached for a packet of cigarettes um, uh, because he was so, so appalled. And Ed Miliband, again, turned round, he'd, he'd been in his, in his home in Doncaster, again with his close advisors and his wife, and they'd had a chilli and were drinking some Diet Cokes, I think, no alcohol there. Um, and the results came, the exit poll forecast came through and there was silence. He turned around to his advisors and said, does that seem accurate? 
so no one could really comprehend it. Mm. Um, and then clearly, the from pretty early on, the swings were yeah. were showing that it was it was about right. And then it, it from the Tory Tory perspective, it got better and better as the night went on. Um, Linton Crosby back in in Conservative headquarters got his bugle out. <laughs> he had a bugle and started blowing a, a little <laughs> tune on the on the trumpet every time a big scalp fell, like Vince Cable or Red Bulls or um, cheering cheering up the troops. Yes, it was it was quite a night. Well, um, Tim, thanks a lot for for doing this. Um, if we have whetted your appetite, Tim's book is called Why the Tories Won: The Inside Story of the 2015 Election. It's available at some ridiculously low price on Politicos. <laughs> Tim, thanks a lot. Thank you.